Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high-yield account. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We turn our attention to the markets this week. U.S. CPI endeavors reinforcing concerns about inflation. The financial stories that shape our world. A really different reaction to markets. More indications of just how hot the U.S. economy really is. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Catherine Keating, CEO of BNY Mellon. Sam Zell, chairman and founder of Equity Group Investment. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Searching in vain for solid ground in an escalating Russian war in Ukraine, in a troubled global economy, and goodness knows in the British authorities' economic management. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week, special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard on the potential next shoe to drop economically. I doubt we've seen the last mine uh, go off. Some of them may be in the private sector. I think more of them may be international. And former New Jersey governor and EPA administrator Christine Todd Whitman on a path forward on nuclear energy. Nuclear can play a huge role, at least in the transition from fossil fuels to renewables. Wall Street spent the week trying to get its footing after things only got worse in Ukraine as Russian missiles rained down across the country and NATO chief Jens Stoltenberg had to reassure us that things weren't about to go nuclear. Russia knows that the nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. The IMF released its economic projections and its chief economist warned that a global recession just may be looming. What we see is that about a third of the global economy is going to be uh, experiencing a contraction this year or next. And if that weren't enough, President Biden told CNN recession may come specifically to the United States. 
I don't think there will be a recession. If it is, it'll be a very slight recession. And then, then the CPI numbers came in hotter than expected, with the headline number still up at 8.2% and core accelerating to 6.6% year over year. It is not a good picture here. Those who were thinking that inflation might drop off fairly quickly uh, are going to be disappointed by the numbers here. In the meantime, over in Great Britain, we had a week of financial turmoil with a very public battle between the Bank of England and Prime Minister Truss's government, which ended up with a new Chancellor of the Exchequer and her giving up on more of her controversial budget. I want to be honest. This is difficult. But we will get through this storm and we will deliver the strong and sustained growth that can transform the prosperity of our country for generations to come. But the surprises weren't all bad this week, at least not for former Fed Chair Ben Bernanke, who was awakened to learn that he shares with two others the Nobel Prize for economics this year. It was completely unexpected. Uh, my wife and I shut off our cell phones when we went to bed last night, not thinking about this issue. Um, and it was our daughter in Chicago who was finally contacted and called us on the landline to inform us that this, uh, this had happened. And the markets had just as hard a time as the rest of us finding its footing, with the S&P swinging five points between big losses and big gains on Thursday alone after the CPI numbers came out. For the week, the S&P 500 was down 1.55%, the Nasdaq down over 3%, and yield on the 10-year was up over 13 basis points to close the week just above 4%. To help us sort out a wild week in the markets, we welcome now Joanne Feeney, partner in Advisors Capital Management, and Lizanne Saunders, chief investment strategist strategist at Charles Schwab. So welcome back, both of you, to Wall Street Week. Let me start with you, Lizanne. What happened this week? I feel like we got hit by a Mack truck. So I think it was probably mostly technical, the reversal that we saw yesterday uh, on an intraday basis in the first part of the day. You did see the swoon take the S&P to below 35.17. And I'm, I'm not a technician, but that level was important because it was the 50% retracement of the post-pandemic move higher. And, and that probably kicked in a combination of buying, hedges being taken off, some short covering, and that fed on itself through the end of the day. Maybe you could point to the move down in yields yesterday, the move down in the dollar, but that could also help to explain today's weakness too, because you saw there. Uh, so, Joanna, a fair amount of noise, I think it's fair to say, in the equity markets there. But on Friday, actually, they gave up pretty much everything they got back on Thursday. So when you net-net, when you get through it all, what did we learn this week that should affect the markets over the longer term? You know, David, I think what we learned is that there's still a lot of risks out there uh, facing the future of the global economy, not just here in the U.S. And those two price reports we got, the PPI and the CPI, reinforce the view that inflation is going to be a really hard challenge for the Fed to solve. But it also seems to have removed any wiggle room that people uh, think the Fed has. They're, they're really going to have to be adamant about raising rates, try to constrain liquidity, try to discourage consumer demand in order for inflation to get under control. There's not a lot of room for them to do anything but raise rates now for the next at least couple of meetings. The market finally, perhaps, is digesting that. Lizanne, there's a lot of talk yeah, about... Sorry, go ahead, please. Yeah, I... I I think Joanne's absolutely right. And I think there there have been these moments where it, it seems like, whether it's in reaction to things going on in the UK, that the market's almost cheering for or looking for some sort of financial system 
accident because of the messaging from the Fed, from Powell, that they're not going to step in because of financial market weakness uh, across any of the asset markets or just volatility, but financial system instability may be what could bring the Fed back in. But even in a situation like that, what they may do is use the tool of their balance sheet or repo facilities versus doing a pivot anytime soon on rates. And I'm not sure that's been fully digested by the market yet. Yeah, there could be certainly more digestion to come, particularly because the risks that are out there are, are really unusual. Uh, you know, it's not just the inflation problem, right? The U.S. has a labor shortage, uh, born of the pandemic, born of early retirees, born of a lack of legal uh, migration, immigration into the U.S. Joanne Feeney and Lizanne Saunders will be staying with us as we try to figure out what to do with our money in these turbulent times. That's coming up next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Well, this was the week when Wall Street got much of what it had been asking for and then decided quite characteristically that it didn't like it. The economy is simmering down as requested. Industrial production took its worst fall in more than a year. Business inventories are rising ominously. And the Housing Industries Trade Association said its members were virtually out of business. That, of course, was Louis Ruckheiser on Wall Street Week back in, in 1981, believe it or not, 41 years ago now, when all the markets wanted was a slowing economy and the lower interest rates that they thought would come with that. The big movie that week was a romantic comedy, you may not remember it, with Burt Reynolds named Paternity. And the number one song was Arthur's theme from that Dudley Moore film named Arthur. Now the problems are very different as interest rates are on the way up, not down, and the economy is still very robust by most measures. Still with us are Joanne Feeney of Advisors Capital Management and Liz Ann Saunders of Charles Schwab. So, Joanne, let me come to you. The question is, what do we do with our money in this world? Where does it make sense to invest with this much volatility, this much uncertainty? Yeah, it's really been a challenging time for investors, and it really depends what sort of time frame uh, you have as an investor. You know, if, if you're in retirement, uh, what you probably need is some assurance that uh, you're going to be able to get the cash flow you need off of your portfolio. And so one of the things we've done for, for our clients in that kind of a situation is to create portfolios with above average dividend yields on the one side. And now as bond yields are rising and we've kept our duration relatively short, we've been able to let bonds mature and then re-up at higher yields. So, you know, one area to go to is uh, some relatively stable companies, whether it's General Mills or an AbV or, uh, you know, some of the others in consumer staples and in energy that have, you know, dividend yields in the 4, 5, 6% range. And that way they can still get that income and they can ride out the volatility in the stock prices and wait this out. And then that gives our clients a fair bit of comfort. But, you know, it hasn't been easy really for anybody, but that's one way to deal with the volatility. Lizanne, what are you recommending these days? Well, first of all, I, I absolutely agree with Joanne that there's no there's no cookie cutter answer to a question like that. It really does depend on who the investor is, their risk tolerance, their past experience, their time horizon, whether their financial risk tolerance and their emotional risk tolerance, whether there's a narrow gap between the two or a wide gap between the two. But I think we're in the, a part of the market cycle right now where you want to actually focus on fundamentals. And I, I know that sounds trite and sounds what we're always supposed to do, but gone are the days where you could look at segments of the market, components of, say, big tech, and look at it monolithically, make an assumption that they're all going to go up uh, simultaneously. There's much more differentiation in the market right now. And I'd say look 
for where things are dear from a macro perspective. So we have declining earnings revisions in the aggregate. So look for the factor around positive earnings revisions, positive earnings surprise. We know we're in a rising interest rate environment. So companies with strong balance sheets, uh, low debt, high cash flow, strong free cash flow, um, uh, low, lower volatility. It's just kind of a quality wrapper. And I think that's the best type of approach uh, in this environment. And then the last thing we've suggested for those investors who, who can do it, if you were a rebalancer based on the calendar, maybe instead of doing it once a year, once a quarter, let your portfolio and the volatility associated with dictate the timing of, of taking advantage of the volatility by, you know, adding into weakness, trimming into strength relative to your overall uh, strategic asset allocation. Joanne, what about uh, the possibility of fixed income at this point? I mean, for a long time, you didn't want to be in bonds, given what was going on in bonds. But those yields have really come up. They're yielding something now, and they do generate cash. I mean, it's sort of like dividends, right? Yeah, absolutely right. You know, we're getting uh, in the order of 6-plus percent in, in yields in our all-investment-grade uh, uh, fixed income solution. And when you pair that with in a balance strategy with the equity front, you know, you can generate a pretty nice cash flow for clients. Um, and so if you keep duration short and you're really careful about selecting credit quality, because credit spreads have widened here, so you want to be careful that you're not adding risk to the side of your portfolio that is supposed to be sort of the suspenders on the pants, right, to, to provide more stability. And so that's one thing we've done, and, it, and it's helped our clients feel a lot more comfortable in this kind of environment. Lizanne, are you to the point yet where you'd consider duration, that is going longer duration yeah. for fixed income? So my, my colleague, Kathy Jones, who's a regular guest on, uh, on Bloomberg, she's our fixed income strategist. And in the sort of four-ish percent range, we have suggested you can consider lengthening uh, duration. But I, I agree with everything that Joanne said, too. I think there are finally opportunities. You know, we've gone from a, from a TINA environment, there is no, no alternative, to TIA. There is an alternative. And there's income and fixed income again. And there are strategies, a bit more active strategies that you can employ to take advantage of this move up in uh, yields. Even well down the duration spectrum, you're actually generating a yield. And if inflation ever came down, um, we might actually have positive real yields. We're not quite there yet, but I think we'll get there. Well, you know, Lizanne, I wanted to pick up, that was exactly the point I was going to make, is the challenge is that inflation is so high that even if you're getting those appealing yields on fixed income, you're still losing purchasing power. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we you know, continue to counsel if, if the client has appropriate risk tolerances and time horizon, the equity side can help you offset the cost of inflation. You know, For example, one of the stocks in, in one of these portfolios is McDonald's. Now, what you want is to find a company like that that has good cash flow that can continue to pay its dividend, but more importantly even, can raise its dividend year after year. And they just announced this week a 10% increase in their dividend. So you're being compensated, more than compensated, for that cost of inflation eroding the purchasing power of your money. And that's something that you're more likely to get on the equity side than you are on the, on the fixed income side. What about earnings? We are in earnings season now. We had the first four banks come out this week with their earnings. Is there a possibility that could help the investor right now to the upside? It's possible. I think the rub, though, is that even if we end reporting season with 
um, some sort of positive beat rate. We have to recognize that estimates have been coming down since the April-May period of time, both for the second half of 2022 and the first half of 2023. So it, is, it has been a lowered bar. And much like the second quarter, we're still early, but expectations are that energy pretty much is all the earnings growth. So mm. consensus right now, once the quarter is all said and done, a month from now or so, you'll have 3% overall S&P earnings growth. But you exclude energy, that goes down to minus 3%. And and that's if, if that's the case, that would be worse than the second quarter. And I think the path of least resistance for estimates is still down. I'd also say really important to watch and listen in earnings season, not just for did you beat your numbers, what were your profit margins? What's your profit margin outlook? If you're a multinational company, the impact of the incredibly strong dollar, whether you're hedging it or not, the impact of inflation, whether you have a lot of fixed costs or variable costs, what your labor costs are. So I think it's a lot of the, the details under the surface that are matter as much as just the top line reading. Thank you so much to Joanne Feeney and Liz Saunders. Great to have you with us. Coming up, if we're really serious about getting to zero emissions, experts say expanded nuclear power has to be part of the plan. We'll talk about the challenges and the opportunities with Christine Todd Whitman, former administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Net zero emissions. It's a lofty goal, but time's a-wasting. Just ask John Kerry, President Biden's special climate envoy. Many companies are making promises to be net zero by 2050. But the reality is, unless you do enough between now and 2030, you can't hit net zero 2050. And if we're really going to get there, Bill Gates says the math makes a pretty compelling case for nuclear power. You get a million times as much energy per reaction as you do burning hydrocarbons. And so it's very advantaged if you do the design right. Nuclear physicist and former Energy Secretary Ernest Moniz says it won't get done without a public-private partnership. I think what we need to see is governments moving together with the financial sector and with the, uh, the equipment providers uh, to get new power plants uh, over, over the finish line. But partnership or not, convincing the public about safety may remain an issue, given high-profile accidents like Fukushima, Japan in 2011, when an earthquake led to a disaster at the plant, causing tens of thousands of evacuations. All the nuclear power plants in this country, they operate really on this precipice of normal routine operation on one side and catastrophic accident on the other. And it's, it's, it's unclear exactly when kind of you'll fall to one side or the other, but it's certainly possible. So the question is, what will it take, how safe it can be, and how soon can we get there? Even for some who initially opposed the idea, but now embrace it. Given this challenge we face today, and given the progress of fourth generation nuclear, go for it. And to get us some answers to these very important questions, we turn now to Christine Todd Whitman. She is president of Whitman Strategies. She is, of course, the former governor of the state of New Jersey and the former administrator of the EPA. So welcome to Wall Street Week. It's really good to have you with us, Governor. You've dealt with nuclear energy for years now. So give us your sense of the role of nuclear energy potentially in getting to net zero. Well, I think nuclear can play a huge role, at least in the transition from fossil fuels to renewables. 
Renewables are not yet base energy. They're peak shaving. And we're a 24-7 society, as is the rest of the world. The world is 24-7. And nuclear is the only form of base power that releases no regulated pollutants or greenhouse gases while it's producing power. And we have an, an incredible safety record here in this country on nuclear, and actually with few, obviously, very huge exceptions, being Chernobyl and what happened in Fukushima Daiichi, um, overall worldwide, it's been, it's been safe and getting safer all the time. I mean, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission is considered the gold standard on regulatory oversight of nuclear reactors. I don't think, given costs and time, that we're going to see any more large reactors built in this country, certainly. They are being built in China. They're being built around the world. And we can certainly play a part in developing the, the parts for those reactors. But I see the future for nuclear right now being in the small modular reactors. Nuclear is actually one of the few things that really don't have emissions that can be taken to scale. I think something like 20% of energy in the United States is generated by 70% in France. Right. And, you know, you saw an example of what happens when you take nuclear offline. When California took the San Onofre nuclear reactor offline, their emissions went up and the cost of their energy went up. I mean, it was totally counter to everything that they were hoping to achieve, in my mind. And so what I found over time is that if you have an opportunity to talk to people and answer their very real questions, I mean, it's, it's normal to have questions about the safety, and you should ask them. But the answers are really good, and they're based on our history. You can prove that, in fact, these things work. And once you do that with people, they get much more comfortable with the idea of nuclear. It's just that for so long, um, it's been used as, frankly, a fundraiser a lot of times for the environmental groups. And we need to get the public to understand, particularly with the new small modular reactors that are built in a contained facility. They can be placed on site. They're much safer technology. They are a much safer way to produce the nuclear energy. So overall, they are really, I believe, have the potential to make a huge difference, particularly if you think about um, the rural parts of America where you're not on the grid or you're not close to the grid, you can take a small modular reactor and provide power for an entire town or an entire business. So they have a lot of potential there. So let's pursue that question of safety, because that is on a lot of people's minds, without a doubt. And as you've mentioned, we've had some horrific instances. Is the issue with safety that people don't realize that actually the track record is quite good for nuclear? Or is it technological development, such as, as you're referring to, small module reactors? No, I think it's because people just don't know. Uh, they don't understand. I mean, I get a lot of questions I used to in the past about, well, what about um, the spent rods? And first of all, I tell them from all that when the time when we had 102 nuclear reactors in this country and you took all those spent rods and you put them in one place, you'd fill up one football field to the height of the goalposts. They may have gotten slightly above that now because this was uh, data from several years ago. But the point being, it's not this massive thing, this size of the state of Vermont. Okay, Governor, thank you so very much for being with us. Really appreciate it. That's former Governor Christine Todd Whitman now with Whitman Strategy. Coming up, we wrap up the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. 
It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. Welcome once again, our very special contributor to Wall Street Week. He is Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, we got the CPI numbers in that we'd waited for this week, and boy, they came in hot and expected. It's been doing this repeatedly now. What do you read in these numbers? Not so much hotter than I expected. Inflation's got a lot of momentum. The best single measure to look at for inflation is a kind of super core measure, which is wages where you can look at the median component of uh, inflation. They've just been running strong for a long time and not decelerating. So I think Team Transitory is engaged in a lot of uh, wishful thinking. And I must say that I'm struck by the hypocrisy of some friends of mine like Paul Krugman, who are very quick now to focus on housing and the fact that uh, the private indices lead the public indices when the private indices are looking soft, but were entirely unwilling to credit that argument or to pay attention to the private indices some months ago when the private indices were obviously pointing to an acceleration of inflation. So I think we've got to be uh, very, uh, very careful uh, here if we want to be credible about containing inflation. How much momentum is built into inflation and how can you tell? What are you looking at right now that's telling you what happens in the fourth quarter and as we go into next year? I'm looking at core measures. I'm looking at super core measures that take housing out, take used cars out, in addition to taking food and energy out. 
I'm looking at the so-called median inflation component, whatever product it is that's right in the middle. I'm looking at the so-called trimmed mean that looks at the middle half of the distribution of product prices. And very crucially for me, I'm looking at wages, um, which is a kind of super core measure because labor goes into everything. And all of those are saying that inflation's not really coming down very fast, if it's coming down at all, and that it's way above uh, the 2% target or any acceptable level. Besides the CPI numbers, Larry, a very big story throughout the week has been and continues to be Great Britain, uh, where you had the Bank of England come in with their emergency buying of long-term gilts that is due to expire on Friday, the end of this week. At the same time, we now have uh, Liz Truss coming out and making some changes. Give us your take on what's going on in the British economy and, more importantly, the management of the British economy. Look, I think this is probably going to be a textbook case of crisis creation followed by uh, crisis uh, mismanagement. Um, I'd be surprised if we were in the seventh inning of uh, this particular set of challenges. Um, I have said before. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large-sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com that people now, I think, understand very clearly that when you do a military intervention, you should never give a sunset date when you're going to leave because it just emboldens the opposition. And I think something similar is true of last resort uh, finance, where the kind of deadline the Bank of England gave, I think, is asking for trouble uh, down, uh, down the road. 
So I think we're going to see more tremors, more aftershocks, more problems. Well, exactly, Larry. I, I guess I'm asking to say that we have global uh, slowdown. IMF this week came out and said we're looking at a global slowdown. At the same time, we have central banks in the development countries really all raising rates at the same time. What is the likelihood we're going to see similar, won't be the same, but similar sorts of problems elsewhere, particularly when it comes to very highly leveraged places and places that are more difficult to see, some of the private credit, some of the non-bank banks? I doubt we've seen the last mine uh, go off. Some of them may be in the private sector. I think more of them may be international. You know, something that disappointed me at the IMF World Bank meetings this week was uh, the number of countries who were reporting that they're having substantial difficulty in getting market access. And I must say, I'm sort of disappointed by uh, official sector people, people from the ministries of finance and the central banks who are talking about how we're going to work with the private sector to catalyze trillions of dollars of finance for green transitions in all these countries, but don't seem to be doing anything about the fact that many of these countries can't even issue a bond uh, today. So I think there's a whole set of very important challenges with respect to developing countries and emerging markets. And I'd have to say that I don't feel those challenges were really met uh, this week. Uh, there are some fires burning and the fire department uh, is still mostly in the station. So as we speak to you, you are in Washington for those IMF World Bank meetings and the IIF as, as a practical matter. You were very outspoken in a project syndicate piece, also actually speaking with David Malpass, the head of the World Bank, about the role of the World Bank right now on things like sustainability. Uh, what is going on there? Is the World Bank playing the role it should be playing, and what should it be doing? No, I think it is um, playing its usual roles in its usual uh, way. And I think generally the economic crisis of the moment demands major changes in approach, just as the security crisis in Ukraine demanded major changes in approach. And we're not really quite seeing it uh, yet. The World Bank needs to be much more aggressive in the use of its balance sheet, and it also needs to get much more capital. And instead of having a fight about which of those two things is more important, we need to do both of them. Because the one mistake we're certain not to make is over-investing in the green transition. And so we need to make sure we're doing everything we can uh, to support that transition. So if there is a lack there, Larry, often that lack comes from a lack of leadership. Do we not have the leadership we need either from the United States Treasury, the White House, or for that matter, the World Bank? I mean, would you ever consider taking over that role? I think that we do need leadership that points towards uh, larger changes in business as usual than we're seeing uh, in the financial area. And I think there's some mistakes being made right now at a very, very difficult moment in Africa, at a very, very difficult moment in uh, Latin America, at a very, very difficult moment in parts of Asia. 
Larry, one piece of news which was actually really hit the markets but has not gotten too much attention is what the United States did with respect to semiconductors and China. The, the, the chips market really went down substantially and it took a lot of the tech with it. Uh, at a time of so much difficulty globally, what are the possible effects of those sorts of trade action? You know, the kind of large-scale cutoff on cooperation in semiconductors that the Biden administration announced. I don't think it's possible to pass an overall judgment on that without understanding the security risks that they saw, which depend on classified information, which those of us on the outside uh, don't have. Okay, thank you so much to Larry Summers, our very special contributor here at Wall Street Week. Finally, one more thought. When money is no object, watch out. They say the one with the most toys wins. And let's face it, toys usually cost money. And the bigger the toy, the more money it costs. Take, for example, Jeff Bezos' new yacht, the largest sailing yacht in the world at 417 feet and costing upwards of $500 million. Or Elon Musk agreeing to plunk down $44 billion for the prize of owning Twitter, something most people think is worth a lot less than the price tag. That is, if he ends up paying it. There's two options here. One, uh, you know, the deal falls apart and this stock that has been sort of artificially inflated is going to crash. Or if, if things go the way Twitter wants, then they get the guy in charge who, you know, for the last three months has been saying that Twitter's been lying about its user base. But what happens when you spare no expense, go all in, put all your chips on the table and don't win your dream prize? Consider the case of Hillary Clinton's campaign spending $1.4 billion on the 2016 presidential race, substantially more than Donald Trump's $960 million, and coming up short. This is not exactly the speech at the Capitol I hoped to be giving after the election. Or poor Columbia Pictures, which in 1987 decided to make Ishtar, figuring anything with Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty just couldn't fail. But for some reason, a movie about two lounge singers involved in a coup in the made-up country of Ishtar didn't quite land with the audiences. Columbia lost around $40 million on the deal, almost $100 million adjusted for inflation today, and the dud established Ishtar as the synonym for box office flop. This is the oasis. Does this look like an oasis to you? Yeah, look at the birds. Are those vultures? And now we can add Steve Cohen to the list of those who went big and lost. The hugely successful hedge fund manager paid around $2.5 billion to buy the New York Mets, and this year took it to number one, at least in players' salaries. But sad to say, for fans of the Amazons, number one in payroll doesn't mean number one on the diamond. The team lost the third game of the wildcard playoff by a score of six to nothing. I was executing pitches and then the wheels fell off. I don't know why. We just couldn't figure out a way to get some runs, some offense going. Leaving Mr. Cohen to spend the winter going back to first base and thinking hard about whether that $278 million in player salaries just maybe wasn't enough. They're going to get to this great point and they have all this momentum behind them and then they, and they blow it. That's the Mets. That's Mets Metzing. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. 
At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.